Well, this morning we're, we're just thrilled, uh, that we're privileged to have Kyle and Ellen Benefield. Kyle and Ellen are church planters in a colonia or a neighborhood in Mazatlan, Mexico. They've been there about six years now, live there with their three sons. And, uh, Kyle and Ellen were part of the staff, uh, as interns and sent out from the Urbana church where we came from. And, uh, it's a, it's a thrill to invite them to preach to us. Their church at home is in good care, but now today they're here with their, um, family. It's great to have the, the whole gang with us here today. And so I just uh, like to, without any further ado, uh, ask that you give a warm Peoria Vineyard welcome to Kyle Benefield. Well, thank you so much. It is truly an honor and a blessing to be here with you guys. Um, I wanted to start out this morning with just a real quick story about Mexican heritage, just kind of kick off this morning. Because even though our two countries share a common border, there's a lot of times things that happen in the United States and in Mexico that are very different. And part of my job as being a missionary or a cross-cultural church planter is to kind of bridge the two cultures together and to bring people into the knowledge of the other culture. And one of the interesting facts that I love about this Mexican heritage is how closely knit their, their family structure is. The kids will stay in the house until they get married. There's no moving out of the house before you get married. And traditionally, the daughters would actually live in the house. And the youngest daughter, it was her responsibility to stay in the house with the mom and the dad until she grew up, until, until the parents died then later on. And that's kind of a, a tradition that's fading now. But that's what makes this story a little bit of an interesting story because it's so remarkable because it totally goes against some of the Mexican traditions that have been held so deeply. In the early 1990s, there were three boys that were living, no daughters in the family, and they were living with their widowed mother in Chiapas, which is the, the southernmost Mexican state. And they were living there with their widowed mother, and they just got so sick and tired of living there with her. She was just getting older, and she was widowed, and they just didn't want to have to take care of her anymore. So all three sons decided at the same time, we're going to move out from our house. We're going to leave our widowed mother, which is a strict no-no in Mexican culture in terms of caring for your widowed mother. Uh, so all three sons then decided they were going to go out into Mexico and seek their fame and their fortune in their own uh, individual ways. And they all did. And they found their own respective businesses and they all got rich in their own ways. However, guilt started eating at all of the sons after after seeing their abandonment of their own widowed mother. And each son decided in their own way that they had to do something special to be able to make their mother feel loved. And so each son did their own special thing, and then they were getting together one day, and they were talking amongst themselves. And as you can imagine, three brothers getting together, they're always trying to one-up the next person. And so the first brother tells them about the guilt that he felt and what he did to uh, make his mother really happy. And so he said, well, I sent her a Mercedes-Benz with a driver. And the middle brother said, oh, that's nothing. I bought, I bought a mansion for our mother, a big mansion. And the youngest brother said, well, you guys aren't even going to believe what I did for our mother. You know how she loves enjoying and reading the Bible, but now in her elderly age, she can't read as well as she used to. Well, I found a parrot. It's a remarkable parrot that can recite the entire Bible verbatim. And she said, uh, and he said, it took the elders in my church 12 years to be able to teach this bird. And it cost me an arm and a leg, but I sent it because I love her and I feel so bad about what I did. So some time went past. And the mother then sent out three thank you letters to the kids. And the kids all got them. And the first one said, Querido Diego, which means Dear Diego. I'm too old to travel. I stay most of my time at home. So I don't even use the Mercedes. And that driver is really rude. 
And then the second letter arrived, the second son, Querido Felipe. She said, the house you built is so big and I only live in one room of it, yet I still have to clean the entire house. And then the third one said, Querido Jesus. She said, your gift was the best. You're the youngest son and you have always been my favorite. You're such a wonderful son. Thank you so much for that wonderful chicken you sent. It was delicious. <laughs> so... Learning about another culture can be really fun, can't it? Uh, and that's, I'm always here more than willing to help people kind of understand the Mexican culture. But today we're going to be continuing our sermon series on Our God is Too Small. And we'll look at an important man today from the Bible named Gideon and how God manifests his power through Gideon's life and Gideon's story. When Gideon tried to place God inside of a box... It just didn't work out very well for him. But before we really start talking about Gideon, we have to talk a little bit about the backstory of what was happening before we get to the, the Bible verses. Gideon was born into an Israelite family, a tribe of Manasseh. Now, Jacob, who was the patriarchs over all of the 12 tribes of Israel, he had these 12 sons who were his descendants, and they each formed a different tribe of Israel. However, technically, two of the tribes that we know of today weren't because they were sons. They were, they were Manasseh and Ephraim. And Joseph didn't get a lot, and neither did the Levites. They only got the church responsibilities, or the temple responsibilities. But Manasseh and Ephraim were sons of Joseph, and they each got their own lot out of the 12. But one day, Israel was old and was on his deathbed, and this is Jacob, and he was there, and it was customary to bring your kids to the patriarch to be blessed and get the customary blessing of the firstborn son. So these two went with their dad, and they went there. And as Israel reached his hands out, the Bible tells us that when he was going to bless the firstborn son, he crossed his hands, and he did one of these things. So instead of pointing out the, the blessing of the firstborn son on Manasseh, he actually put it out on Ephraim instead. And Joseph was annoyed. Dad, you got it wrong. Manasseh's the bigger son. He's the older son, and you blessed the wrong one. But Jacob said, no, I, I blessed the right one. Ephraim is the firstborn son. So we know that Gideon comes from this tribe. It's technically not even a tribe because they're one of the 12 sons. And he's got their birthright stolen from them from the very beginning. It wasn't even given to the right person. That just irks me, being a person who likes rules and regulations. But in Judges then, we find the story of Gideon. And we find ourselves in a time when everything for this tribe of Manasseh was going wrong. Just think of the worst things that could be possible. They were under this deep oppression from the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites would come in and would kill all of their livestock. They would eat all of their agriculture and just destroy everything they had. And they left the tribe of Manasseh in a deep economic oppression that they were under in the entire region. And they even forced the people to live inside of caves and seek shelter away from the Midianites. So finally, at this point in time, the people, the, uh, the tribe of Manasseh started to yell out to God, God, why is this happening to us? And at that time, God sent a prophet to this tribe. And, and we find that in Judges 6, 8 through 10. Let's read what the words are that the prophet said to this tribe. Once again, it's Judges 6, 8 through 10. The Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites and he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and I gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord, your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. 
So we can see here that the people are in the pits. They are poor. They are one of the only 12 tribes by default. They're under extreme economic duress. And these people are living in fear day in and day out that they're going to be killed or their livestock is going to be ravaged. And so as I was doing some research this morning, I found out in in investigation of what was happening with the Midianites during this time, they made life difficult for anybody that they encountered. They were like a marauding band of people. They went out and just destroyed lives for people. And so anything they found out, they would they would descend on them like a group of locusts, like a plague of locusts, and just devour and destroy everything that they found. And they did force the Israelite tribes, specifically Manasseh, to hide and to live in caves, to stay out of the view from these Midianites who were out seeking to destroy them. Now, one of the things that's interesting when we're talking about the heroes of the Bible is you would think that there would be a lot devoted to them. And as we're in this Old Testament, you think there's a lot of, of stories in the Bible that there would be a big chunk. But Gideon is a really interesting story because out of the 66 uh, stories in the Bible, out of the 66 books in the Bible, only in one book do we find the story of Gideon. And in that one book of Judges, we only find three chapters that even mention Gideon in this entire story. So it's really interesting, even when we're talking about God using people uh, that aren't anything special, he only gets even three chapters out of the entire book. So let's read in Judges 6, 11 through 16, and let's introduce Gideon to ourselves this morning. Then the angel of the Lord came, and he sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash, the clan of Abiazar. Gideon, son of Joash was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and he said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Verse 15. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So throughout much of the Bible, God doesn't seem to be that concerned with our why questions. And I'm not saying that they're bad questions, that we maybe shouldn't even ask them. He just doesn't seem to respond to our why questions. And perhaps things are going rather array for him, for these people. Maybe the correct question wasn't why. Maybe the correct question was, what do I do now? What do I do now? And I like to think of my life when I'm in Mexico. I went there. I had no clue whenever I moved to Mexico that uh, pipes were going to break and water would fly out everywhere. I had no clue that you had to know how to weld. I had no clue that all these things that you need to have an electrician that's full-time in the church all the time to fix everything. And I didn't know about that. So when I went there, I could have been under extreme duress, not knowing what to do, and say, why, God, why would you send me to Mexico with pipes that just leak all the time? And so that's kind of, I felt a little bit like I was a little bit like they were, like the Midianites, asking God, why? Why would all this happen? I've heard about great missionary stories that are doing cool things, and I'm fixing pipes. Why would this happen to me? And I felt like that. And I feel like sometimes the question that we ask, why, is maybe the wrong question. But the angel approached Gideon, and he proclaims to Gideon, he says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. 
And Gideon, understandably so, is extremely surprised and perplexed by this visit of an angel. And if we read along in the details, I think it's really important that we follow and seek what the details are, what's happening, so that we understand what Gideon was doing as the angel approached him at the time he did. And what he was doing was he was threshing wheat. Now, we don't thresh much wheat here. Well, I don't. Maybe you guys do. But more likely... He was using a big stick, which is called a flail. And what you have to do when you thresh wheat is you just you just hit that wheat really hard. And what you do then is you're breaking the husk from the grain of the wheat. And so you hit it like that, and then you use what's called a winnowing fork, which is kind of like a big pitchfork. And you dig down, and you throw it up in the air. And then the husk, which is really light, flies off, and the grain, which is heavy, falls to the ground. And so that's what he was doing. So the first question that comes to my mind whenever I read this entire section is, does this guy look like a hero, like a mighty warrior? And my answer is no, he doesn't. What he looks like to me is a farmer. He doesn't look like a mighty warrior. And, and I no wonder Gideon has doubt as he's there interacting with the angels. And I can see his doubt. Why didn't God do something before with him? Why don't we get to see the cool things that our ancestors got to see? But the angel doesn't seem to be phased with this doubt that Gideon has in his, in his mind. Once again, this why question of why God, why God oftentimes is the wrong question. What now, God? And I think oftentimes the answer is that God wants to use us to be that change. God wants to use us to change the situation that we're in. So the why question is oftentimes the wrong question. So the angel then shoots back to Gideon. He says right back to him, go with the strength and that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. And he says, I am sending you. And I feel for Gideon when I read that. I really feel for him. I imagine me looking down at my less than tight abdominal muscles and my less than, my less than gigantic biceps that I have here. And I just, huh? You want to use me to rescue all of Israel? And so the next part that we read is really interesting. Let's read verse 15 one more time and see what he said. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And here Gideon's transparency and honesty is really striking to me as we read this. Hey, my tribe's the weakest tribe there is, and I'm the smallest, weakest guy in my own family. How am I supposed to do all this? And to be honest, it's all true. Wouldn't it be great if we just thought that Gideon was speaking out of some false humility and he was actually a gigantic, enormous warrior that could actually take over everybody? I don't think he was. I think he really was the weakest person. His tribe really was the weakest. This guy, and I don't like calling people losers, but this guy really had what I would call the loser syndrome quite bad. He had it really bad. He comes from a tribe that shouldn't be a tribe in itself, a tribe whose birthright was stolen from them. Ooh, that gets me. A tribe who was under intense duress, economic stress, marauding enemies trying to kill you at every corner. He has only known in his life what I would call loserdom. That's all he's known his entire life. So it isn't an enormous surprise to me when we read this section, we hear Gideon's words, my clan's the weakest. I'm the weakest of my family. It isn't surprising to me to realize that that's what he's saying. That's what his, um, what his paradigm is. So there is an interesting detail that we haven't gotten to in the story that we haven't mentioned yet. And that is that we know that Gideon was threshing wheat. We know that he was hitting wheat with sticks and throwing it up in the air. But we didn't mention yet where he was threshing wheat. I don't know if you guys caught on to the detail. 
he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, I like to think of wine presses as a big, like, uh, a wooden thing, you know, I think of France and I think of people trip chopping in the wine, like in the grapes. But that isn't what wine presses were. A wine press in this time was a big, like, rock in the ground that they carved out. It was essentially a big hole in the ground. So I love the imagery here. Not only is he the least of his family, the tribe is the least of the tribes. He's in a hole in the ground, hiding out from the Midianites. And the Bible is very clear with us that he's there in this hole so that the Midianites won't see him. So I think that that's great to see. And that's what makes the angel's words so important to us today. As we read it, the angel tells him, go with the strength that you have. And that's the point. That's the point. He doesn't have any strength. He's just a normal person like you, like I am. He's stricken with poverty. He's the weakest of his family, the weakest of his tribe, and he's hiding in a hole. He's just a normal person. God isn't worried much about our weaknesses or our faults or our failures in our life. And the angel of the Lord continues to speak to Gideon. And he says, you will destroy the Midianites as if you are fighting against one man. And I have a hard time with that. Uh, a hard time imagining that Gideon's like, all right, sign me up. Here I am. I'm ready to go. Let's go. Uh, of course he wouldn't say that, just as I wouldn't say that either. I don't think I would. Instead, Gideon does what I think most of us in the room would do. He starts asking for signs. I need a sign to show that this is actually God doing what he's doing. So we find that in verse 17 of Judges 6. Let's read that real quick. Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, Show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Now, we can't read the entire section today because of time, but allow me to explain kind of what happens next. Gideon prepares a sacrifice. He takes a goat, he takes some unleavened bread, and he takes some broth. And he takes all those things, and he puts the goat on a rock, and he puts the unleavened bread on the rock, and he pours the broth out over on top of it. Now, I'm not sure when the last time was that you guys tried to light soaking wet bread on fire was, but I imagine it didn't go real well, if, if anybody's ever tried that. But what happened is the angel came, and with his staff, he touched the rock, and the entire thing was engulfed in flames. And so I would think then that after that entire ordeal, that Gideon obviously would believe of God's plans to overtake the Midianites. This enormous feat that just happened in front of him, uh, and he doesn't believe it. He doesn't. He doubts. We see a little bit more of his doubt in Judges 6, 36 through 38. Then Gideon said to God, If you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel, as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the, th- on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew, In the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowlful of water. Okay, sure fire way. Now we know it. Two signs that have happened. God is behind everything that Gideon is doing right. We've got this wet, soggy bread that was lit on fire. And now we have this fleece that was wet, but everything else was dry. So surely Gideon is going to believe everything and just go right into battle, right? No, exactly. However, it's not how it happens. We got to read what happens next. And I always think that in the Bible, if there's ever a time, you know, it's it's popular in Facebook and Twitter to, to say like facepalm. Like, can you guys do that with me? Like, if there's ever a time that God is, like, face-palming himself, like, it's this interaction with Gideon. Like, come on, man. Judges 6, 39 through 40. Let's read what happens next. Then Gideon said to God, please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. 
Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night, Gideon did as uh, God did as Gideon asked, and the fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered in dew. Here we have the exact same sign in the reverse here. Now, on a side note, I'd just like to mention, there in, in the universal church, I'll, I'll call it the, the, big, the church of the big C, right? There's a quote that we often take that comes out of this story. And you might have heard people say in the past that can sound quite spiritual, kind of coming out of the mouth, uh, coming off the tongue. I'm going to put a fleece out to determine God's will over something in my life. And you've probably heard it said before, Something like this. I don't know if God wants me to sell my house or not, but I'll, I'll just put it out on the market. And if it sells, then it must be God's affirmation that it was supposed to be. Or maybe something like this for those of you who are tech savvy. Uh, I'm thinking about getting the iPhone 5S, but I wasn't sure whether I had the finances to do it or not. Uh, and you'll never believe it. A week ago, my old iPhone dropped into the toilet and it was just, it was just God speaking to me. God wanted me to get the new iPhone 5S. And we have to remember though, as we read this story, that Gideon putting out the fleece, not once, but twice, wasn't a super spiritual thing to do. It was actually a lack of faith on his part. It was a disbelief. And what was happening? Gideon wasn't seeking the will of God in what he was trying to do. He already knew the will of God. An angel came to him and told him what God's will was, but he really doubted that. And so putting out a fleece in our Christian culture isn't a good thing. It's not something we want to do. We need to clear that up, I think. So let's get back to the story. Now that God is with Gideon, and we think that Gideon knows that God is with him after these three uh, final tests, it appears that he's ready to go. There's just this one small uh, thing that we haven't talked about, and that's the problem of an army. He doesn't have an army yet. So the Bible tells us that Gideon selects out 32,000 men to go into battle with him. And I guess 32,000 men for God was way too many. So they had to whittle that thing down. So let's read in Judges 7. Two through eight. Let's read that interaction. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you all fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they have saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord, <clears throat> the Lord who, where am I at? When warriors down to the water, the Lord told them, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouth in the stream. Only 300 men drank on their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. And the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions, ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept 300 men with him. So 32,000 men, obviously way too many. Um, but if we're to continue into Judges later on, you actually find out that the Midianites were 135,000 people strong. Later on, that's what we see. And I like to think about numbers because I'm, I'm kind of a, a numbers guy. I like to think about stuff like that. If if I were to look at the original, 32,000 versus 135,000, 
we're talking about one person with Gideon against four Midianites. Now, that's not a fight I'm really excited about going into. I know that I look really strong from the outside, but I'm not excited about that. Those are not good chances, one against four people. But then there's a first cut. 22,000 people get to go home. Now there's only 10,000. So now we're talking one man against 13 and a half men. I'd rather go against the half man than, than the other 13. But to be honest, that's way too many still. Evidently for God, 13 and a half men is, is way too good of odds for Gideon, right? So we got to keep whittling it down. So eventually they whittle down this army to 300 people only. So 300 people with Gideon against 135,000 Midianites. What that means in, in our terms is one of Gideon versus 450 of the Midianites. That's not a battle. That's a massacre. That's a massacre to end all massacres. That's not a battle. I understand maybe why Gideon was a little bit afraid in the beginning now. Uh, but there's a commentary that kind of floats around about this story that I'd like us to talk about today, about how the 300 men were selected. And I think it's important. There's a commentary that sometimes is even found in the bottom, like the footnotes of, of popular Bibles. And the, the saying goes something like this. The 300 men were selected because they cupped their mouth with water like this, and they brought it to their mouths. And they, people say that they were more alert, that they would be better soldiers on the battlefield. However, I personally have a couple problems with, with this idea. The first one is, I'm not sure that the Hebrew actually backs that up. Uh, if you read it in Hebrew or what's more a literal translation of the Bible, you find out that there's actually there are two camps. There are camps who lap the water like dogs, and there are camps who knelt down and cupped water with their mouths. And in our English translation, I think they're trying to figure out what that means, and they kind of mix-match the two together. So that's one. God actually picks those who lap like dogs, is what the, the Hebrew says. And the second one is, I highly question this because I like to ask myself, is this entire story about military prowess? Is it about having a big, strong army who know more what they're doing? Or is it about a big, strong, powerful God using not powerful people? I think that's the key of it here. The story isn't about God using elite people, an elite a team of people. It's about God using normal people. And I think when we go back to that other understanding, it actually takes away from some of the power, from the understanding of this part of the Bible. So we know the ending of the battle uh, happens. That 300 men go in with Gideon, and they win the battle. And let's read that really quick in Judges 7, 20 through 22. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars, and they held the blazing torches in their left hands, and their horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! And each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. And when the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horn, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Beth Shittah, near Zerah, and to the border of Abel Mechalah, near Tabat. What a fantastic finish. They come in, they don't even have to do anything, their own army kills themselves. That's great. Uh, that's the type of army, if I had to go into battle, I'd rather do that. i just kind of sit and watch and blow a ram's horn and they kind of take care of themselves. Um, but here we see it reiterated again and again and again to us. It's not about elite people doing awesome things. It's not about having the best army, being the most, uh, have the most military prowess people. About uh, It's about normal people listening and believing in an extraordinarily powerful God. And I think that's the entire point of this story 
that we are nothing and that God is everything, that we are weak and that God is strong. And I think if we're honest here in this room, if we look to our failures and our faults and our weaknesses to determine what God can do in our lives or what we can do, I think we sell God short a lot of times. We place him in the same box that Gideon placed God into, deciding who God can and can't use. Allow me to just kind of leave you guys with an encouragement as I close my sermon today. Maybe we are weak. Maybe we come from weak, broken families. Maybe we're filled with doubt, a lot of doubt, maybe. Maybe we're uncertain if God can or even really wants to use some of us. I think this this story of Gideon can be an encouragement to us. And as we read it, maybe throughout the week, that we can be encouraged to ponder on how Gideon was, this farmer hiding in a hole, trying to escape the Midianites, the weakest tribe, stricken with poverty, the weakest of his family, that God wasn't looking for him to be this elite person. He wasn't looking for him to be fearless or a warrior. He was just looking for somebody who would listen to him. I think that's really important. So as we're going to now transition into a time of, of worship, I'd like us all to think about that, that when we worship God, that's kind of what we're doing. We're saying we are weak and you are strong, that we're really nothing and that you are everything. And so as we transition to that, I'd just like you to think about that as we go into a time of ministry afterwards also. Allow me to just pray as we transition to our time of ministry, uh, of worship, and I'll just pray over the offering also. Lord, I just pray that this story of Gideon would just touch everybody that's here. Helping us to realize that, God, we are all really weak if we think about it. Um, We're all just a few seconds away from a nervous breakdown. We all come from some sort of a broken family. And we know that you love to use people who aren't perfect. And we know that you want to use us that are here. And we just welcome you to come and for us to just have the belief to just listen to you and to go forward. And I pray over these offerings. I pray that you would really touch the people's hearts that are giving. And that your Bible says, Lord, that you would, we would give with a cheerful heart. And I just pray that people that are here would really give with a cheerful heart. That you would bless this offering and multiply it towards your kingdom. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.